Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, last summer I had the joy of seeing the musical Hades Town on its first national tour when it stopped in DC. This musical, written by singer-songwriter Anais Mitchell, is a contemporary retelling of the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. So even though the story is over 2,000 years old, I'll do my best to avoid any major spoilers for those who haven't seen the show. Now, both versions of the story follow Orpheus as he attempts to rescue Eurydice from the underworld. One of the key differences in the musical, however, is that this underworld isn't explicitly the realm of the dead. Instead, it's a place of unrecognized and unrewarded labor. It is populated by a crew of workers who have chosen to be there. The place's ruler, Hades, has convinced them all that the security of unrelenting work is better than all the unknowns, the scarcity and the uncertainty of living a life up top. And so one winter, Eurydice, who is hungry and cold, signs her life away to Hades and descends with him to the underworld. Too soon, she discovers that her choice has a terrible price. The workers she encounters have lost all sense of self. She, like them, is becoming nameless and faceless and will soon be forgotten among the throngs. Once Orpheus arrives to rescue Eurydice, the story plays out in much the same way as the myth that inspired it. In the musical, however, the workers catch wind of Hades' promise that the young couple may attempt to leave. And it shakes them out of their own stupor, their own indifference. Captivated by Orpheus's daring to return to life up top, the workers sing to him almost as if in a prayer, show the way so we can see, show the way the world could be. If you can do it, so can she. If she can do it, so can we. Show the way the world could be. Show the way so we believe. We will follow where you lead. We will follow if you show the way. These lost workers look to Orpheus because he is the first sign of hope they've seen in an untold period of time. It is the kind of hope that those of us who are familiar with the story of the people of Israel might call prophetic hope, a promise that the indifference we see in the world is not the only choice we have, a promise of a brighter future, a promise that there is another way to live if only someone would show the way. Now, many of us will be familiar with the prophets of the Bible. Books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Amos and Micah 
are all grouped together and share a similar poetic style. But in the Jewish tradition, the books that Christians sometimes call the histories, books like Joshua and Judges, Samuel and Kings, are gathered together with these other prophets. Now this caught me off guard when I first learned it. But these books all feature the voices of people who follow the will of God, who proclaim that word to God's people, and who show the way the world could be. Simply put, a prophet is someone who sees that things are not the way they should be, who names that disconnect, and then lives a life exemplifying God's unbounded love as though the world had already been made right. Moses is the greatest prophet in the Jewish tradition. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy ends with the author telling us that never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So when Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. These are not idle words, but the promise of someone, something extraordinary to come. It's no wonder that the church has latched onto these words and seen Jesus in them. Moses, in the verses immediately after the portion we read today, goes on to explain that the people will know if a prophet is real, if what that prophet has said comes true. Now this could suggest that prophecy is simply about foreknowledge of the future and about one's ability to convey that knowledge. But for both Moses and Jesus, their prophetic voice, their teaching and their authority is rooted in their relationship with God. Moses saw God face to face and spoke directly with the divine. Jesus, as God's only son, shares not only God's divinity, but God's desires, God's will for all of God's creation. Because of their unique relationship to God, both Moses and Jesus are able to live lives that prove the truth of their words. Lives that show the way the world could be. Now, I've met some wonderful, inspiring faith leaders in my life, but never one who could claim to have known God face to face. And through our shared humanity with Jesus, uh, we, we help to share in Jesus's divinity. But despite this, I've never met anyone who's been able to claim that they perfectly share God's will. In fact, I would be more than a little bit skeptical of someone if they said so. So where does that leave us? How do we continue to do God's will in the world when the bar for authenticity set by Moses and Jesus is impossibly high? Well, despite all our lofty ideals, it can be sometimes helpful to remember we are not God and we never will be. We have to give ourselves permission to be human, to be messy and awkward, to get it wrong from time to time. 
Our scriptures are filled with stories about people who are called to share God's good news with the world and don't, who don't feel the least bit qualified to do so. But just as God promised to be with Moses, Jesus has promised to give us God's Holy Spirit. And by the power of that spirit, the church throughout history has remained in relationship with God. This is why the body of Christ as a whole is called to live out God's will, to be prophetic, to see the things that are not the way they should be, to name that disconnect, and to live as though the world has already been made right. The church is meant to be a foretaste of God's kingdom. We are called to show the way the world could be. Now that being said, the body of Christ has some 2.4 billion members around the world. And if you haven't noticed, we don't always agree on every fine point. Our disagreements have led to arguments, to schisms, to persecution, and to violence. Too often, our ire has landed on already marginalized people. Too often, we forget that the greatest commandment is to love, and especially to love the least of those among us who can do nothing for us. Too often, we will do whatever it takes to make sure we stay as us rather than become one of them. Our need to listen to one another, particularly to voices we may not agree with, has always been our greatest challenge. But I believe, even across all our disagreement, that our goal has always been the same to live the truth of God's good news, to grieve when any part of God's creation is harmed, to trust that death does not have the last word, to show the way the world could be. Like those workers who labor for Hades, we all have a choice to make. Do we say yes to the easy lie that offers peace and protection, but at the cost of our soul? Or do we make the harder choice and live as though God's good news, God's kingdom is already here? My hope is that we will always choose the latter, that we will always choose the love of God, a love that centers the needs of the persecuted, the disenfranchised and the oppressed over our own wants. May we, like Orpheus, like Moses, like Jesus, and so many others, live prophetic lives that show the way the world could be. Amen. Amen.